All right, we're in Psalms 32, beginning with verse 1. Stand together for the reading of God's Word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed and with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord, add his blessing to the scriptures. Please be seated. Psalms 32 reveals to us disciplines that every branch of Christianity understands are basic. Confession and forgiveness. Now, I'm going to use these words repent and confession as synonyms, uh, one or the other. They're, they're the non-technical term that we would probably use for this is that when you know you screwed up, you know, when you know you messed up your life, you've fallen, you've failed, how do you get back up, not broken, but actually better? Actually better. So we're going to take a look at this passage and see what God has to say to us. And the first thing we look at is the need that we have for confession. It's easy to run into the middle of this psalm, ignore the first part of it, but we want to take a look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. The word blessed in the English there just means inspired or lifted up. But in the Bible, it's much more profound than that. We talked about that when we went through the Beatitude. It means a complete wellness of being, a complete wellness of being, profound fulfillment. That's what blessedness means. David's saying the most fulfilled life belongs to people who have been deeply forgiven by God. In Luke 7, Jesus says a, a remarkable thing that highlights this. He meets with a religious leader by the name of Simon. And he also meets with a woman of the street who washes, you'll remember this, washes Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. And Simon is taken back by the emotion of this scene and with Jesus. And, and, uh, and Jesus, in one of the greatest rebukes in world history, turns to Simon and says, Simon, can I, can I tell you why she's more passionate? Can I tell you why she's more compassionate and more loving than you are? And he says in verse 47, the one who is forgiven little 
loves little. Jesus is saying the most loving, blessed, compassionate, fulfilled people are people who have been forgiven the most in life. According to Scripture, there are three kinds of people in the world. Just three. First, people who feel they're too good to be forgiven. They don't do anything wrong. They're fine. They're, they're, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not a perfect individual. Occasionally, I might need to be forgiven. There's those kinds of people. And then there's people who feel they're too bad to be forgiven. God will never forgive me for all the stuff that I've done in my life. And thirdly, those who, who need it, who have it, who enjoy it, if you're one of those, you're the happiest people in the world. You're the happiest people in the world. So Jesus says, if you don't love much, you're not compassionate, you're not loving, you're not a giving person, you haven't been forgiven enough. You just haven't been forgiven enough. It's a remarkable statement that he makes here in Scripture. Now, some people just look at all this and they say, this is a bunch of hogwash. All this stuff that you're talking about, all this talk about guilt and confession, it's all obsolete. It's all obsolete. Come on, guilt, guilt for us is not the problem. It, it is for your generation, who you think you are. Societies in the past were filled with guilt, and people who weren't living up to this or that role or doing this or doing that, people who just weren't living up. But, but today, we, we kind of choose our own lane. We choose our own stuff. We, we create our own identity, our own morality. I decide what's right for wrong and wrong for me. I decide that. So we don't have the same problems with guilt. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Notice in verse 1, it says, not only blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, but it goes on to say, but it says, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. When David talks about the need for covering He's making a reference to Genesis 3. He's going back to Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. They're, they're, they're naked and unashamed, right? Naked and unashamed. They eat from the tree. God said, don't. They did. They sinned. Then they realized that they were naked and they used what Scripture says is fig leaves to make coverings for themselves. And there's this deep need that came into humanity, and there's this deep need that we have from the very beginning for covering, covering of our lives. We can't stand to be uncovered. This is endemic to all generations. This is endemic to all cultures. It doesn't change. I used this guy before because he's, he's so easy to go to. But uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, in his work, Being and Nothingness, we learned this in first-year philosophy. But Sartre contends that and I'll put it on the screen here. He says, human existence uh, is a conundrum whereby each of us exists for as long as we live within the overall condition of nothingness. How'd you like to spend some time enjoying this guy? <laughs> the overall condition of nothingness. He has a very famous illustration that he uses. He says, imagine yourself in a room. And in this room, you see, you look around, you see a keyhole. And the keyhole, and you see this light that's coming through the keyhole. So when you get down and you look through the keyhole, you see people doing things. And they don't know that you're watching. 
But you can see them. They don't see you. It's very empowering, right? Um, it's like a one-way mirror type of thing. And, and now you have power. You're watching them. They don't know you're there. You're, and suddenly you're looking through the keyhole and you hear a noise behind you. And you turn around and you look to what's going on behind you and you see another keyhole with an eye. And you realize somebody's watching you. Someone's watching you. And now you're the object, not the subject. It's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. It's unbearable. So why? Sark says it's because we need to control how people see us. We need to control how people see us. To be uncovered where someone has complete access to what we're thinking, what we're doing, how we're living without knowing it or being in control is utterly dehumanizing. We can't bear it. We don't want people to know who we are, to look into our lives, to look into our past, to look at who we are as individuals. And of course, Sark is an existentialist, you know. He doesn't believe in moral absolutes, living up to someone else's standards or any standards at all. And yet he says every human being desperately wants to be covered. Why would he say that? Every human being desperately wants to be covered. We don't want people to see who we are, how we think. And he's saying if anybody has that kind of access to us, they'll see things that we're ashamed of. I know that's true in my life. I don't want you looking at my stuff, you know. Sartre is pointing out that we don't live up to our own standards. We got our own, we got our own, we make our own right and right. Well, we don't even live up to those own standards that we have with our own hearts and lives. Sure, there's, there's a traditional society with given standards. And in modern society, we say the meaning of life is for you to work out your own standards, be what you want to be. But you're never the person that you say you are. You're never the person you say you want to be. You're never who you claim to be. Never. We're never there. And we all know this. So he destroys his own argument. It's really interesting. He destroys his own argument. He's saying everybody has a problem with guilt and shame. That's what he's saying. Everybody desperately needs to be covered. Wants to be covered. Has to be covered. Has to keep people from seeing who we really are. No matter what century, no matter what culture, it makes no difference at all. Today we're so sophisticated. We're so sophisticated. And we laugh at this whole idea of guilt. Ah, you know, And yet we sense that there's something wrong with us. And you may laugh and say, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in all this stuff. I don't believe in moral law. I don't believe in sin. Yet deep down, deep down in all of us, we know there's something wrong. There's something wrong in all of us. We all sense this. So don't you see how wonderful it is to be the kind of person who says, blessed is the one God has covered. I don't have to cover myself anymore. I don't have to cover myself anymore. Wouldn't it be amazing? Don't have to defend yourself. Don't have to spin Overwork, underwork, worry about what the mirror says and what's going on. 
No, no, no. I'm forgiven. I'm covered. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. That's what's going on in this psalm. So there are four basic things that I want to go through this morning that you have to do if you're going to get anywhere near this blessedness. And, And David gives them to us right here. These things are mainly about confessing to God and confessing to other people in our lives. Confession will not work unless you first distinguish between true and false guilt. What I mean by that, look down at verse 5 in your scriptures. Look what David says here. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Who's you here? Well, it's God. He's talking to God here. I express and acknowledge my sin to you. In Psalm 51, David says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And eyebrows go up and people's minds start to just explode and they say, what are you talking about? David killed somebody. He stole this this person's wife and then he had him killed. And he said, against you and you only have I sinned? What's that all about? Right? And I've heard this argued for years, you know, but here's the point of it. The point is, David has found a way to judge between true guilt and false guilt. How do you tell the difference? He says, I have a standard. I have a standard in life. And that standard is God. That standard is the Word of God. And if I bring my guilt to this standard, this, if you're in, in working in, in the trades, the straight edge that they use, and I see there's nothing there that says this is wrong, I don't, I'll chuck it. I don't really care. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what my friends say. I'm not guilty because this standard, which is God, this standard, which is the scripture, says I'm not guilty. This is okay. You know, it's equally true. If I bring my guilt to the straight edge and it says, yes, you're guilty, I don't care what anyone says there. I'm guilty. If God says it in his word, and I'm looking at it, and I'm reading it, and I'm coming before God, then I'm guilty of this. And a lot of those people say, well, you have, to, you have to make up your own mind, your own heart, if this is right or wrong. It's like the old Jiminy Cricket thing. You know, is he canceled? Jiminy Cricket? We can still say that. Jiminy, Jiminy Cricket, you know. Always let your conscience be your guide, right? Hogwash. Hogwash. There are a lot of people locked up because they did this. You know, look at Hitler. His conscience was, hey, it's okay what I'm doing because I'm creating a better world. That's his conscience. It's a better world. The Bible has an answer for this. 1 John says, if our hearts condemn us, this standard, who is God, is greater than my heart. Greater than my heart. We have a straight edge. We have a standard. And David had it. And he says, Lord, against you, against you, I acknowledge my sin as sin to you. I don't look at any other standard. I don't care what anyone else says. To you and you only. So the first thing you have to do is confession is you have to have an intellectual discernment to go to God with your heart. Go to the scriptures. Then secondly, you have to distinguish between grief and self-pity. 
Now, what do I mean by that? I can't tell you how many people think they've confessed and they don't change. You notice that? They confess, confess, and they don't change. Something happens. Why not? Why isn't there a change that happens in their life? At the end of verse 5, take a look at that. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. What did he confess? What did he confess? And what does he get that forgiveness for? What does he say? It's right there in verse 5. He says, for the iniquity of my sin. What does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) Kind of redundant, isn't it? Isn't iniquity sin? Isn't sin iniquity? Isn't transgression sin? Isn't that all the same? He says, I confess the sinness of my sin. You ever think about that statement? I've looked at it again and again. What is he saying here? Then this is important. And this is why. After the confession is over, he senses God saying something to him. Look down at verses 8 and verse 9. He says, I will now guide you. God is saying this. I will now guide you. I will counsel you with my eye on you. I want to counsel you eye to eye and face to face. I want to be personal with you, God is saying to him. I don't want you to act like a horse and a mule. Okay. I don't want to be a horse and a mule. So think about what he's saying here. What what is this going on? The mule's walking along, and he wants to go to the left. He wants to go to the left. He gets a a kick. And all right, and he comes back to where he's supposed to go. And he goes for a little bit, and he wants to go to the left again because there's something over there he wants to eat. He likes it. He wants to go over there. So he gets a kick again. He comes back to the right. And he does it again, and he gets a kick, and it's ouch! And he comes back, and then finally he gets a wallop, and he comes back, and you know what? He still wants to go over there. He still wants to go over there. And he finally gets this kick, and a bit comes up into his mouth. You get the picture? You get the picture? He doesn't go left anymore. Why? That's the point. What is the scripture saying here? Why? You see, he's sorry for the pain. He's sorry for the kick. He's sorry for the consequence of his sin, but he doesn't understand the heart of the master. That's what David is saying here. He doesn't see the sinness of his sin. It won't be long before he's going left again. I see this a lot in marriage counseling. The same, it's the same, same thing, you know. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of people. Guys, guys never want to come. It's always the women they want to come for counseling. The guys and the wives got to work on it. Finally, the wife will say to them, "You know what? I'm about to leave you. I'm tired of this. This is just nonsense. I'm tired of this, and I'm ready to leave." So next thing, you'll get a phone call. It's pastor. We need counseling. We need to come and we need to talk to you. So they come. And he says, you know what? He says, the wife says, I'm cold and indifferent. Now, the whole congregation knows this guy's cold and indifferent. You know, we know this guy. She says, I'm cold and indifferent. So he says, I'm, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, what can I do? And she says, well, if you do this, you do this, and this, and this, and whatnot, then, then I, I think it would be better. He says, well, absolutely, I'll do those things. That's what I want to do, you know. Six months goes by, and now he's looking around at things, and he's looking at things, and he begins to realize she, she probably wasn't going to leave him Anyway, and, and the humiliation of the thing and the inconvenience of it wasn't really going to happen. 
And so he's right back to his old ways again, doing the same thing. She says, I'm going to leave you. So back to the office. You know, back to the office. Here's what I came to understand. He was the mule. He was the mule. He was sorry, but only for the consequence of his sin. You see what I'm saying? This is what this is all about here. He didn't see that his sin was hurting the person that he loved. The sin was hurting people around him because it was affecting the family. He didn't see the sinness of his sin. He just saw the inconvenience of his sin. And the result is he didn't change. He didn't change. He said he was confessing. He said he was repenting. But he wasn't. He wasn't. You see the difference? So the first discern between what is true and false guilt. There's a standard that we go to. There's a straight edge. Then secondly, know the difference between sorrow for sin and being sorry for yourself. Third thing, you've got to change your perspective of how you look at life. You see that in the very word confess. He says, I will confess my transgression. The Greek word is homologeo. Homologeo. And uh, I put it on the screen there. That's the definition of it. Uh, it means to agree. To agree to the same thing. You know, you're agreeing with God or you're agreeing with your spouse, you know, that kind of thing. To, homos means same, legeos means to speak, to speak the same thing. To come alongside, see things from the perspective of the person that you've wronged. So if we've sinned against God, we've got to see what God says about it. We want to agree with God. So there's this coming together. So you have to do the emotional work. That's what this is. This is an emotional thing now. Well, say, I, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. I've offended you, I'm sorry. Most of the time, that means I don't really think I've offended you exactly. If you have, then okay, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want this to be a big deal. Imagine you know, what it means to you. But, but I don't want anyone saying that I didn't apologize. I don't want anyone saying that. I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you heal relationships with sincerity. With sincerity. Homologeo, agreeing together with that person, listening to one another. I'm, you're not just saying, I'm sorry, you're confessing. You're confessing. You're standing in their shoes with them. You're coming alongside, and everyone you meet is precious to God. Remember that. Everyone you meet is precious to God. You say, well, how do I do that with God? How, do I, how would I do that with God? Because I've sinned against God. Now how am I, so, and I wrote, wrote this down because I had to think about it. You have to say, Lord, I can hardly imagine what it's like to create somebody. Keep their heart pumping their lungs breathing. I can hardly imagine what it's like to give everything to everybody and be ignored day in and day out and to have promises broken over and over and over again. I can't hardly imagine, but I'm trying, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And if you're willing to change perspectives, put yourself in that other person's place, you'll start to heal that relationship. 
that you have. Then finally, take full responsibility. Verse 5, verse 5. He said, I did not cover my iniquity. What does that mean? He says, I didn't cover my tail. I didn't cover my tail. No excuses. Think, 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 think. You, you have not really confessed when you say, I did it, but they did it too. <laughs> I did it, but you know what they did? You know? I did it. They're just as bad. Or you say, I, it was only 20% me. It was 80% them. Here's what I say. Admit your 20% and shut up. Shut up about the 80%. Repentance and confession start when blame shifting ends and self-pity ends and you go to the standard. You go to the standard. So there's four things, but there's one more that I want to bring that I think is so very powerful and so very important. Do you ever wonder why so many people seem like they're, they're crying or they're confessing and, and a week later there's really no difference? There's no change in their lives. They haven't changed. And there's no growth, no blessedness. Look at this amazing statement in verse 5. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave me. It doesn't say I confessed and the Lord thought about it. Right? The Lord thought about it. It happened immediately. I confess and the Lord forgave. You know, how can God do this? How can God do that? Go back to verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And there it is. There it is. Counts. Counts. That's an amazing statement. That's some God forgives us because he doesn't count against us what we've done wrong in our life. Imagine you got a terrible, some of you are school teachers here, you, got, you, you went to a class, you had a test, you had a terrible grade on this test, and the professor comes by or the teacher comes by and says, you know what, I'm not going to count this test against your final grade. Not going to do that. Now, the next test I will, but not this one. I, we're gonna, just going to let this one go. Um, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, you know, hallelujah. That's what David is saying here. When I confess my sins, God forgives my sins. He covers me because he doesn't count it against me. You hear what he's saying here? Our sin has nothing to do with our final grade. How is that possible? Look at verse 7. It's in verse 7. David says, you are my hiding place. I love this. I love this. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. You. Now watch this. Watch this here. David had some sense that God himself was going to be his covering. There is some way that I can hide in God. That's what David, there's some way I can hide in God. How can you hide in God when your big problem is you need to hide from God? You know, because of your sin. How can you hide from God in God? Do you know why the crucifixion was such a horrible, horrible execution? Because you're stripped naked. Your arms are tied, your arms are nailed, 
you're open so you can't even preserve your modesty. And you're hanging there in front of the world. It was the ultimate keyhole. The ultimate keyhole. You didn't die quickly. You died slowly. You didn't die privately. You died publicly. In front of all. Utterly naked. Utterly exposed. You died of exposure, literally. And everyone's looking at you. And they walk by and they spit on you. And the people came and they look and they mocked. It was the ultimate keyhole. The ultimate dehumanation. Why did Jesus do it? He was stripped so you could be clothed. So you could be clothed. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, which means God counted Jesus, counted Jesus as a sinner so he didn't have to count us as sinners. That's what this is saying. That's what David is saying here. You know, and then we go to Romans 8, which we love. Therefore, the, now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? If you don't understand this, you don't understand the basis of your forgiveness, the basis of the gospel, and you're going to be on a miracle round of sin the rest of your life. If you, if you keep that sin, look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You, you can keep it if you want. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength dried up like the summer heat. We've had a lot of heat lately. And this is the final skill in confession of sin. This is the final thing. You need to distinguish between, first of all, true and false guilt. You need that standard. You need to, to, to look between self-pity and what is really um, sin. You need to change your perspective. Put yourself in that person's place. Take responsibility. Change your hiding place. Change your hiding place. Um, David says in verse 7, you're my hiding place. You're the one who surrounds me with songs of deliverance. We have within us, and God put this there, a, 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 a homing instinct of the soul, of our souls. The heart's deepest longing is to come home where we belong. We're made for God, to come home to God. There's a longing in our lives that there's something more, there's something else. Let me share with you a poem that was written by Carol Stevenson. I, I had her funeral on Friday of this week. Carol was a dear person. You know, she was a member of the, I don't know how long Thelma's been here, but she was a member of the Covenant Church over there for 90 years. She died at 98, and we had, the, had her uh, celebration on, on Friday where we were over at uh, Oakland Hills. And uh, let me share with you a poem that she wrote. It's a short poem. And I, and I put it on the screen. It's just beautiful. And she wrote this not long before she passed away. Carol would get up in the morning. She'd always have a cup of coffee and her devotions every morning. A cup of coffee and her devotions every morning. And uh, it speaks of her hiding place. It says, when I pause to pray, I reach for that quietness which is God. And in the silence there is response. Soundless is the air that I breathe. Strength comes 
and faith increases. What is it we're looking for? Jesus said, you're looking for me. You're looking for me. Carol found her hiding place that even death could not shake. I reach for the quietness which is God. I love that. I reach for the quietness which is God. Uh, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we, we sing on Wednesday night uh, before we do the Bible study, and I, and I brought a song that we've sung before, which just says the same thing. It's a song that I like. No, I don't know if anyone else likes it, but I really don't care. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I found myself a hiding place. I found myself a secret space in the shelter of almighty love, in the safety of the Savior's arms. I will run to the hiding place. I will run to the hiding place. Draw me ever closer to look upon your face. I will run to the hiding place. I found myself a hiding place. I found myself a secret space in the refuge of the Father's care, in the cleansing blood of Jesus there. Though my fear may overwhelm me, troubles may surround, though the wind rise up to take me, my hiding place is already found. I found myself a hiding place. The opposite of that is in verse 3 again. And I didn't confess my sins, my bones wasted away, and your hand was heavy upon me. No, 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 no. You're my hiding place, Lord. You're my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You watch over my life. You forgive my sins. You wash me clean. You're preparing a place. You're my hiding place. And I run to you. I run to you. Learn to confess. Confess. And eventually confessing will not be what it is for most of us, traumatic. It will be something you do every day with joy. When you come before the Lord, you'll do it with joy, confessing before him. Instead of running from God, you'll be running to God with your life. And when you do that, you'll find like David said, you don't, don't remember that passage? He says, if I go up into heaven, you're there. Where's your hiding place? If I go into hell, you're there. Wherever I am, on the wings of the... David, God's everywhere. God, you're, you're my hiding place and you're everywhere I go. You're my hiding place. When you choose to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior of your life, you're saying really, in effect, I'm no longer going to hide from you. I choose to hide in you. And I hope everybody's done that here today, that you've accepted the Lord Jesus, that you've come to him so that your sins can be covered and forgiven. And you find the joy of the Lord in that. Um, and therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God covers you, and he counts you as his possession. What could be better? What could be better? Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for this powerful scripture, what it means to us. So many lives that have been changed over the years. So many people who have accepted this scripture and claimed these promises of the forgiveness of sins that have run to you 
have found in you all that's needed for a blessed life. We pray for that for ourselves, pray for that for our families, for our friends, for our children, for our community, for our world. That there would be this awakening to the things of God. And we take this scripture today, and Father, we pray that each one of us applies it to our lives, that uh, we need confession. We need to be on our knees before you. And we need to come before you and say, Lord, you're the standard. I don't, I don't care what my mind tells me to do. I don't care about I, I, what are you telling me to do. So we give that to you. And we don't want to be like, like the mule or the horse. We give it to you. And we trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.